Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week in Health IT. The pandemic has been a massive distraction. I like to look on the bright side is that had we not had high tech in place back in 2009, we wouldn't even be where we are today had that level of adoption permeated hospitals and clinicians. We would be in a whole different world of heart. So that's the good news, right? Yeah. Can you imagine having a pandemic 10 years ago? It would have been a disaster. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week in Health IT, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to Sirius Healthcare, Health Lyrics, and Worldwide Technology, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. Before we begin, I want to share an exciting announcement for This Week in Health IT. Starting in 2022, we're going to have four channels to bring our community more specialized content for your specific needs. The four channels are news, community, conference, and the academy. The news channel will have our Today and Newsday shows where we explore the news that is going to impact health IT. The community channel is just that, a place where we come together and collaborate. One of the distinctions of this channel is that we will have guest hosts from the industry and people that they invite to talk about the topics that we wrestle with every day. Things like clinical informatics, data, security, and the like. We're excited about where the community will take this channel. The Academy is about training. It's about training the next generation of health leaders. Here's where we're gonna be launching our new show. It's called Insights. And the show will actually take highlights from our last five years and break them into 10 minute episodes for your team and perhaps people who are new to health IT to come up to speed. Finally, this channel, the one you're listening to right now, will become our conference channel. The same great content you travel across the country to receive, we're going to be bringing to you right on this channel. This show will become Keynote, where we do our long form 50 minute interviews with industry leaders. And we will be augmenting that with solution showcases and briefing campaigns that introduce exciting solutions in more detail. For more information on our other channels and where you can subscribe, visit us at thisweekhealth.com slash shows, S-H-O-W-S. Now on to the show. All right, it's Newsday. And today we are joined by Mari Savickas with Chime Public Policy. And we are going to look at the year that was in Washington, D.C. with regard to health IT. And we're going to look at the year that's coming up. We're also going to touch on some cybersecurity stuff as well. They just did a really cool survey and we're going to share some of the findings from that as well. Mari, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill, for having me back. Well, this is fun. I like, I like the uh, cadence of this, bringing you on and finding out what's going on up on the hill or what's not going on. Sometimes lack of progress is is the news, but this year it hasn't been. There's been a lot of things that have happened, oddly enough, in a pandemic year. Actually, you shared some information with me ahead of time. We've talked about this before, but a, a lot of accomplishments from the public policy side. So give us a little taste of it, and then I'll, I'll chime in with some questions about them. For those of you who have tuned in before and heard our, our conversation, cyber is the name of the game over here. 
And so at the top of the year, January 6th, it seems like a distant memory, right? Almost a year ago, President Trump actually, it was Trump, it was one of the last bills that he signed before leaving office, signed a bill into law that is really something we've been working on for years. And the way that it works in D.C. is it's a lot of rolling boulders up the mountain kind of thing. Nothing just happens quickly. And so it was years of advocacy to get to this point. But we'd heard pretty consistently from providers and our members that the environment with breaches and compliance is very punitive. And so we've been taking a multi-pronged approach to how to address this. So the multi-pronged approach includes working as part of our healthcare sector, being an active participant, right? Getting relief for providers in the form of uh, this law, which is going to give HHS authority to soften some of the audits and the intensity of them and the fines that go along with them. Again, if you are a provider who follows best practices for at least a year, and those best practices are include the ones that have been co-developed by HHS in the industry, lovingly known as 405D or HICCUP. And so this is a big deal. I mean, they're developed in conjunction with the government. We have a big say in it. One of our members actually is, is the co-chair, Eric Zucker, and the other co-chairs with HHS. And so there's a lot of people who had a lot of interest in this. And what's great about the practices is that they are designed for not just um, big, you know, well-funded providers. They're also designed for the smaller medium. And you don't have to do everything in one day, right? Can I say it's, it's a journey. It almost has to be designed for the smaller players. Because when you look at the breaches over the last year or so, some of those small players, it's the Skylakes Medical Center and, and oh, I forget the one out of New York, but there's smaller players that were ransomed. And I mean, I guess we had one big player, you had Scripps, which was ransomed, but it's it's not the large players that are getting really wiped out. It's the smaller players who don't have the funds. And so this kind of relief, you know, is targeted to help them around the audits and compliance as long as you're following best practices, but it's also designed to get them money, isn't it? That's exactly right. I mean, I think there's a widespread acknowledgement that the smaller and lesser resource providers are exactly just that, lesser resource. And so their level of sophistication is not on par with some of the larger providers. And they may not even have even a part-time security officer. So they're just very behind and they're actually also the weakest link. And so they end up being a threat to the entire healthcare ecosystem because they're an easy target. And some, I just had a conversation with someone this morning who represents rural healthcare providers and one of their members was hit. And I think it was, it was rural Michigan. I guess they thought, oh, well, why would anybody want anything to do with that? So it's like, oh, they actually want everything to do with you, right? And so you're the way that they would burrow in. So it's trying to bring more awareness to this effort that the sector is free to join. Everyone should join. You know, I'm sure you'll pick up the information at the end of the show, Bill, but there's no cost. The tools are free. Yay, we love free. Who doesn't like free? And it's very collaborative in nature because we all are in this together. So that was, that was the one thing. And actually, just yesterday, HHS launched a website on 405D. It sounds like, oh, kind of mundane. No, no, no. Everything is one-stop shopping now. We're really excited about this. In fact, we're sending a member alert out. They'll all send it to you. But this is good. This is great news. So you can just, again, we just need to drive more attention to it so that folks know that this is a set of tools that actually was developed by your peers and can be used by you. Because there's still a lower awareness of it. I think part of that is the complexity, right? So you're talking about that, the 405D resources, ISAC and, and other things. There's a bunch of resources for us to pull together. If you were talking to a CIO, what are the one-stop shops? Where do they go to get, get speed and, and really understand things? Because again, the complexity, the amount of information, hey, work with the local FBI, work with this, work with that. It's just, it, it's overwhelming. 
it is overwhelming. And so what I would say is that that's why you join a professional association. So if you're a member of Chime or AHIS, that's a good place to start. If you're not a member of ours, then hopefully you're a member of another organization who's keeping tabs on this for you. We have, and I can share with you, Bill, we have a list of free resources that the government has. We've compiled this together into a neat little cheat sheet. And then again, worst case, if you get stuck and you get hit by a cyber attack and you really don't know where to turn, you can always call me. You can call the team over here and we don't need to know what happened. It's not, I was raised Catholic. It's like, we don't have to go in, we're going to go into confession, right? You're just going to tell me just enough for me to make the handoff to the proper officials. And then we step out of it. So the worst case, if you're having trouble to getting a response that you can let us know. One of the top things that's recommended by the government is that you get to know your local FBI office. So if you haven't done that, and that's one step, costs you nothing that you could do today, is go find out. And again, Bill, I can give you the links to where those field offices are. We've gotten questions like, well, how do I find the FBI? It's not the one in DC, right? There's, there's field offices across the country and we can connect you with them. And so you should establish a relationship with them. That's just one, one step you can do. You know, we're going to come back to cybersecurity, but obviously we have a patient ID, we have interoperability, we have a bunch of things. So let's hit on patient ID. Talk about it. So this is another monumental year. So this is the third year that the House of Representatives has actually excluded the language. If there's language in, in the appropriations bill that funds HHS, okay? Well, let's go back in the time machine for a moment. I believe it was 1999, it was like 20 years ago, that Congress stripped out some language and said, okay, HIPAA, here's the law, HIPAA, you have to create identifiers for providers, standards, that is, standards. I want to just re-emphasize, it doesn't have to be a number, but standards for identifying clinicians or identifying for patients for uh, health plans. And the thing is like the, the provide a patient piece has been very controversial. And so that piece has been removed and there's a prohibition in Congress right now, again, it's the law that says HIS can't fund anything related to establishing a standard for a patient that identifies them. That's why there's no you know, number or, or solution or framework that HHS has adopted. So there's that, and that's been something we've been fighting to overturn. So this is the third year the House of Representatives took out that difficult language, and it's the first year that the Senate acted to try and take it out. So of course, it means to make it across the finish line. And as you know, right now, tomorrow is the deadline for the government to be funded. And so there's no funding bill fully through in the entire fiscal year 2022. So right now, we're looking at a CR, hopefully not a shutdown. They're trying to work that all out right now. So what that means is like things just kind of continue status quo. That means the language still stays in, but you have to live to fight another day. So we, we celebrate the victory that the Senate acknowledged it and that we're going to, you know, try to move this or continue moving this forward. It's going to be really hard and truth to be told, it's not going to happen immediately. And so anyone who's holding their breath thinking that this is going to become law is, you know, it's really not realistic. It's going to happen. I don't think this year, I mean, I want to be optimistic, but I have to be realist too. But we're getting closer. Every day is a little bit closer. If anybody wants to join the coalition, you can join our coalition. And it's free also to help us get the ban removed. Yeah, every time I talk to you, I feel like I'm going back through Schoolhouse Rock and the bill moving up to the Senate, to the House, then to the Senate. And it does take some time for some of these bills to make it through. I All this is about is about funding the research, right? So we're not trying to solve the problem of, okay, we have this many undocumented immigrants in Southern California, roughly six to 
8% of the people that presented in one of our hospitals were undocumented because essentially they weren't Kaiser patients. And so they came to the Catholic health system, which provided care for anybody who came in the front door. When I think of this, that's the first thing that pops into my mind. Like they're not going to have an ID. So is this just like, Hey, this gets us to the starting line and we start to figure those things out. Is that how we're thinking about this? There, I mean, certainly there are these persnickety use cases like children, like immigrants, right? Somebody who maybe is homeless. This is a problem that needs to be solved. And I mean, yes, we could potentially assign a number that's highly controversial and it doesn't have to be a number. And then again, maybe if someone's illegal, they might want to get a number. I mean, I think we, you don't want to let perfect be the enemy of the good, but you do have to keep your eye on these populations who may be underserved. So we do think it needs to be able to be able to touch everyone. You know, in the absence of Congress allowing HHS to spend even one penny on establishing a standard, we did have a framework that we, the coalition adopted that says, like, here's some parameters that you could think through. I mean, if you want some nights reading at night, Bill, I'd be happy to send you the framework. It's pretty lengthy, but it takes into consideration things like, you know, privacy and security. I think that's some of the concerns are rooted in the government having control over people's data. But I mean, some of these arguments are somewhat antiquated. And you and I have talked about this before, we're giving away a lot of data anyway. And so to think that it's not actually already out there, and there's actually bumpers, the government can't just do what they want to do with personal data. There's the Privacy Act of 1974. Not to say that, you know, I know people say, oh, back helicopters, someone's gonna, something's going to happen. Sure, but I guess that's already happening today, and it's not the government. Right. So you just have, just have to know that. So we don't have a national privacy law. I mean, that sort of bleeds into another conversation, but there's some voices who are louder in Washington who are not going to necessarily let this go over the finish line without a lot of kicking and screaming. And so we continue to try to get champions and educate folks on the need for this. Yeah. I mean, the conversation right. we've had is I, I just don't think we should paint the people who aren't jumping up and down about a patient ID as Luddites. They're, they're not necessarily Luddites. They're looking yeah. at it and saying, okay, yeah. what about privacy? What about this group, what about, there's a lot of challenges to it that just, just need, it needs to be, to see the light of day in terms of a debate. And I think that's what we're pushing for here, right? Let's get it on the Senate floor. Let's have the debate. Let's have the conversation. Let's put it to a vote and, and make it part of the public consciousness. Patient ID can help in a lot of different areas if done well. It can also have some downsides and we just need to be aware of those things and talk about them. And so I, I think this is a big win in that we had the conversation on the House floor, passed or took the language out. Now we're starting to have the conversation on the Senate floor and, and, and making progress. But this is the kind of thing if people are thinking, oh, this is close to the finish line. It could be an administration or, or potentially two away from actually getting across the finish line, depending on what happens next. We, we just never know. I forgot to mention one important thing. Again, like about to like, you know, swim through the policy thicket every day is Congress asked ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator, to do a report on patient matching. And so we're waiting for this report with bated breath. The last we've heard, it's supposed to be out by the end of the year, but this too is something those who might be waiting to decide how they wanna move forward on this are waiting for the ONC report. So we're very anxious about this. And I'm sure maybe the next time, if you invite me back for 2022, we can talk about the report if it's out by then. Oh, you'll be invited back. Don't don't worry about that. No, I don't know. I'm not even there. So I want to make sure I don't get a lump of coal in my stocking. Yeah, no, you'll probably get a like a dish for Elon Musk's new internet service so that we, we can have a better connection next year. I'm not I'm sorry. Oh, 
I just we can just do it in person somehow if I can navigate the travel. Well, quite frankly, we will see each other a fair amount. You have, yeah. Is it called Vive? Is it the Vive Conference? Is that right? I mean, I hear people pronounce that all over the place. Oh, it's the Viva conference. I'm like, I don't think it's Viva. <laughs> I think it's Vive. Talk to me about privacy. I have said for a while, and I've talked to a bunch of people who agree with me that HIPAA is so antiquated, but we adhere to it like it is the Ten Commandments handed down from on high, which we should, but it is really, there are sections of it that are so antiquated. Is there any, any movement towards like bringing that back up and redoing it? Or are we just sort of piecemealing, redoing provisions as we do certain other other yeah. laws and other things? I talk about privacy all day long. It's like one of my favorite topics. So, okay, is HIPAA antiquated? Probably, right? Is there anything better right now? No, nope, not so much, not in this country. There's also a long history of compliance with HIPAA. And so you have this, oh, let me just say, let me back up for a second. Providers, if they like nothing else, they want certainty, right? Just tell, they say, just tell me what I have to yes. do. So I don't, don't, don't give me more work. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Well, or just, or I just want to understand like what it is you're asking me to do. I mean, said another way is they don't like in ambiguity. We want bright yellow lines. We want to know what, what state are you being held to, so on and so forth. And so there's a long history of HIPAA, of, of compliance. And so it's not perfect. I think you could probably argue either side. So when you start looking at the national privacy bills, there are some limited HIPAA carve outs, some, not all though. And I have a comparison chart, but it would totally put you to sleep. But here's the thing, like one thing that I think we're gonna have to wrestle with is this notion of de-identified data. So what you're asking me like, is HIPAA antiquated? Well, I, and when it comes to de-identification of data, all you need is geolocation tracking and you can identify someone with pretty darn good certainty about who they are. So once you add that in, and pretty much you, that's yourself on another one, okay? So they're gonna know everyone where you're going because there's only one person going to Bill Russell's house who does exactly what you do every single day. It's like a fingerprint. Right. So in that, in that respect, that is integrated. But if you look at some of these bills, they have like de-identified data as carve out. And so, you know, I think that's something that's gonna have to be wrestled to the ground. I'm not sure that I have, I mean, I'm sure I don't have the answer, but it's uh, tough, right? So I'm not even sure that some of these other bills that try to like go a little bit further are going to solve all of the calls like what ails us. Yeah, the de-identified data is the one area you touch on, which is an interesting one. I'll stay there. But we, we've had people on the show and we've talked about like six other areas that really could use uh, some just a basic touch up, but others like a rethinking because this thing's this thing's getting up there in age and technology is changing so rapidly. De-identified data is pretty interesting. If somebody has a record of where I live. And I've talked on the show of the places I've lived. I've lived in Pennsylvania. I've lived in California. I lived in Missouri. Now I live in Florida. And if they get access to that de-identified patient information and that kind of stuff, and it has any kind of information about where they're coming from, which they generally do, because if you're doing research on a population, the geography matters, right? So some aspect of that is going to be in the de-identified data. And the, the thing I've talked about is, we have, we have this new thing that's being launched. A lot of health systems have gotten on board and they're all putting in their patient data. That's the identified data. And I've identified at least two health systems that I have visited that have put my data into this repository without ever asking me if I want my data in that repository. I guess if, I'm not even sure if it's covered with this, but I could opt out of the 
record sharing, but that was more for the health information exchange. But I think it's being applied to this, to this new venture. And by the way, they spin up this thing, this venture, and it's now it's valued at billions of dollars based on my data, your data, everybody's data. And I'm sitting there going, I'm sort of scratching my head going, I don't, I don't know what I want here, but there's something in terms of at least ask me. And I understand it's, it's not my data per se, because they made the record, but it's data about me. And I just think there's, it's time for another conversation around maybe not patient who, who owns the, who owns the data. Cause I've often said that the health system owns the data. They created the record. I just want joint custody. So if you stand up this new thing with, with all these health systems and put this stuff in there, I, I want to be able to tap into it somehow for my record. I don't want everybody else's record just for so my record. Is it, is it data bill? Is it de-identified? Are we still on the topic of de-identified? Yeah, we are. We are. Okay. Yes, it is de-identified. You're it's right. It's complicated, right? It's complicated, right? Yeah. Because we just discussed how data can be easily reattached. But I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, some of these health systems are I mean, they're not going to just put this out into the ether. They're doing, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I can argue both sides. Like, and I really could. They're doing it to improve like their AI algorithms, right? They do it in the name, they say in the name of patient care and improvement. But I, but I agree. I mean, I'll tell you this. I learned the hard way that everyone who knows HIPAA knows PPO operations, right? The O is a little bit of a slush bucket of stuff, right? And when you sign away your consent, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that they, that, you know, that the providers, you know, can take, like, for example, a placenta, right? I didn't know that they could just do something with that. I didn't know that. And so I think this comes to the larger conversation. I guess maybe I'm going to put my consumer hat on and take my time hat off to be careful here. Yeah. It's just transparency, right? I mean, you just want to be transparent about what you're doing. And so I think that would be a step in the right direction is if you're, as you incrementally move into providers are moving into this space and launching deals with big tech is just being forthright and forthcoming. Is a, is yeah. A, and and I'm not calling out healthcare here because all my Google data is being used for making money for advertising and that kind of stuff. All my Amazon data is being used yeah. to market stuff right back to me and that kind of stuff. I think there's a larger conversation around personal information, the use of personal information in the 21st century, I think is a conversation that's that's worth having on the Hill. So if you talk to anyone influential, say, I, I would love to know if that that conversation is moving forward. It's a sticky conversation, well, uh, but it's interesting. It's happening, but Congress has been fairly distracted this year. They're still distracted, yeah. right? They have a lot of stuff they need to do before the end of the year. And there's, I don't even know how many business days are left for them, but there's not that many. They're dealing with a government shutdown tomorrow. They're still dealing with Build Back Better dealing with the National Defense uh, Authorization Act. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening first before you get to privacy. And this is really coming back to the privacy thing. I'll send you the table. You can just do a quick search on like HIPAA, right? For example, what's the definition of sensitive data when you talk about a national privacy or yeah, national privacy law? What is sensitive, right? Look at how they treat de-identified data. These are not easy questions. So I think that there's, I mean, it's probably not going to be perfect whatever comes out. But we're yep. actually lagging other countries. And so what the last thing I'll say is that you just, again, celebrate victories is the Federal Trade Commission. They're the ones that govern third-party apps and data that's housed in non-HIPAA uh, covered entities. They said, hey, guys, we're, we're going to start looking at these third-party apps more and the privacy terms and conditions, which is really a victory for consumers, for the patient-turned consumer who is giving their data away to 
maybe they don't really know or they think it's one person but it's really like there's a downstream effect here so we just have to take this in bite-sized pieces i don't yep. think we're going to solve everything tomorrow yeah, no, that's definitely a win. Interoperability, you know, Chime has some wins there. I, let's hit on that because clearly it's 21st century cures is coming upon us. Oh, yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we're moving along. I and mean, obviously the pandemic has been a massive distraction. I mean, on the one hand, again, looking, I like to look on the bright side. I'm a glass half full kind of person. Is that had we not had high tech in place back in 2009, that we wouldn't even be where we are today had that level of adoption permeated hospitals and clinicians. We would be in a whole different world of heart. So that's the good news, right? I mean, can you imagine having a pandemic 10 years ago? It would have been a disaster. So we're a lot closer than we were, but it's still not perfect. And one of the things you, you know, just go back to the HIPAA stuff for a moment that we need for interoperability is consent. That is not ironed out nicely. There's no easy, clean way to do consent electronically. And then when you start mixing in, you know, substance abuse data, it gets very complicated. So that part, I mean, this is a work in progress. Now back to information blocking and the 21st Century Cures Act. I think we have some challenges with APIs and security. I think people are just starting to wake up to this. You can say, oh, no, everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Well, I don't think that that's true. And I'm not alone in my thinking. So increasingly, I think you're going to hear more about that. So the deadlines too are rapidly approaching, like within a year. Does everybody have a Firebase server? I don't know. I don't think so. Somebody should probably, it probably will be off. We'll probably take a look and see what the permeation rate is. But people are behind too. It's still a pandemic. I mean, we're moving in the right direction. We have an interoperability one-stop shop for everyone. We have implementation guides. It's infoblockingcenter.org. We and many other provider associations banded together. So you can go and take a look and see what resources you need. And if you have a question, you can fire it off to us and we'll try to answer it. I will say that we're still waiting for answers for some of the questions in terms of implementation that we get from members from ONC. So not that we have all the answers, but we'll tell you if we do or don't know. Yeah. One-stop shop, infoblockingcenter.org. What am I going to find there? You're going to find like, for example, eight exceptions to information blocking. Super complicated. The privacy one is like, I think the most, one of the most complicated. So your team has has broken it down and done those things. You guys are also doing a lot of online content and that kind of stuff. You develop those cheat sheets, which I love. It really is fantastic. So your team is yourself. Who who else is on your team? So we have Andrew Tomlinson. He's our director of federal affairs. We have Cassie Leonard. She's our director of congressional affairs. And then Lauren Cameron, who is our administrative assistant. And we were small but mighty. We have to like tons above our weight. But I think we get a lot done. And yeah, our, just for everyone listening, if you're not a member, that's okay. We welcome you with open arms to any of our policy webinars. They're free. All of our information, there's no firewall to get into our cheat sheets, also free. So if you want to be on our distribution list for our Monday newsletter, also free. So yeah, send all your friends and family over, Bill. Actually, I do peruse that, that newsletter every week. It's really helpful just to know what's going on. And to stay ahead of the curve, I really appreciate all the stuff that your team is doing. We'll have to have Cassie on it because we had, we've had Andrew on it at some point, but we have not had Cassie on. Get her in front of the mic and find out what's going on from her perspective. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy to bring the team on next year. That would be that would be fabulous. They're both amazing. The last thing I want to do for this show is I want to hit this cybersecurity study that you've done. Actually, to just to tee it up, we we were talking about a story, attracting, retaining healthcare CISOs. Maybe it's not a money problem. And this is in SC Media. 
Jessica Davis wrote this article. She says, all sectors are facing cybersecurity staffing shortages with the latest data showing that the U.S. cybersecurity workforce needs to increase by 65% to protect critical infrastructure. But for healthcare, the challenges are more severe. Three out of four hospitals operates without a designated security leader. Three out of four. Wow. But I know that's true because I have clients I talk to and they you know, have a half person or they have a person who splits their role. So I, I see that those roles are then handed to IT or compliance officers. From an outside perspective, the reasons for these shortages would seem related to budget constraints. After more than a year of battling the pandemic, many hospitals and health systems are operating with fewer staff overall and facing staggering financial challenges. Data from the AHA estimates that the net financial impact and collective losses tied to COVID-19 hospitalizations from March to June of 2020, which was the worst period of time, but alone will be 36.6 billion because that's when we stopped the elective surgery. So that's a, that's a interesting point in time to take. That's going to be the worst uh, case scenario. And the total does not include the estimated 161.4 billion in lost revenue from canceled surgeries and other services. It's interesting to me, there is a shortage in cybersecurity for sure. There's actually a, a growing staffing problem in health IT just in general. We've, we've had almost a war start for talent and people are being hired away from other health systems and those kinds of things. And I'm hearing some shortages as, as much as 15% uh, open positions at certain health systems. Now I've gone off the security side. I'm just saying in health IT, they could have 15% open positions, but cybersecurity CISOs, really good CISOs are hard to come by. If they are going to move, they probably have moved and they're where they need to be. So there's a significant shortage in the staff not only from a strategy standpoint, but also from a, an engineering standpoint as well. So you guys did an interesting survey. I say you guys, I don't know if you did it per se, but Chime. It was basically with AHIS, our affiliate organization comprised of CISOs. Oh, okay. So we asked, it's our, yeah, it's our survey. And we see with them to fill this out because we really need to know where we need to push and pull in DC. I mean, you hit on all of the the challenge. The workforce stuff is a big challenge. And I personally know several students who have left healthcare. But that article you referenced that you sent me, I think Mac was quoted, I think it was him, maybe it was someone else, about their, you know, students are really wearing like a, a super person cape or some sort of cape. Like they're just trying to do the best they can every day. And maybe, maybe their salary isn't like the only factor. They really feel very vested in getting up and doing the right thing, which is what I found. I mean, there's a lot of places you can work, but working for patients is really a calling. So, I mean, there there are shortages, and I think that's something we have to work on together. The sector is aware of that. We we hired David Finn. He's now again on board, and he's working to you know again help us with cybersecurity issues and membership and drive more awareness. And we'll be diving into some of these issues like workforce. There's, I mean, there's no shortage of problems when it comes to CISOs. And I think though, like the work that we do as part of the sector draws more attention to it. There's a lot of money that's actually been flowing out of the coffers in DC for cybersecurity, but it's not specific to healthcare. So we have to like, we have to live to fight another day on that as well, because we've been behind the eight ball. We're yep. not banking, but we're, but we're working hard together. Yep. So it did go out to uh, CISOs within healthcare. Here's some of the findings. 67% of respondents indicated 
they had a security incident in the last 12 months that meshes with my anecdotal conversations that I've had. 45% were unaware of free best practices from 405D. Only 52% are members of ISAC and 80% of respondents indicated the cost of cyber insurance had increased over the past year. I talked to somebody that their, their cyber insurance had almost gone up by 50% and they don't think that's going to stop. And it's not only the cost going up, but the <laughs> the requirements are such that they're so stringent that if, if you follow those requirements, you you really aren't going to get breached or, I mean, you reduce the likelihood so so much. And I guess that is part of the reason that insurance companies exist is to uh, drive higher level of compliance, but they're, they're sort of looking at what they have to do. And they're like, well, if I, in order to do all these things, I, I have to go to the board and get a couple million dollars to do all this work just so we can get this insurance policy and be compliant with our insurance policy. So it's, it's just another way to drive the conversation. I'm not against that, to be honest with you. For years, it was hard to talk to boards, hard to talk to leaders and get them to want to invest the, the money necessary for good cybersecurity. And anything like that, where you say, look, we're not going to be able to get a cyber policy unless we do these things and we've scoped these out and this is what it's going to cost. You know, that just backstops me as a leader in trying to make that case. The cyber liability thing is a big deal. We've heard lots of problems about that. I had one member who's in an urban area who is sort of disadvantaged populations that she wasn't able to get the same policy she got last year and that she had to like, get a supplemental policy and still doesn't have the same amount of coverage. And that the requirements are exhaustive that you have to meet. And some of the so those feedback has been that not all of the requirements that must be met are actually helpful. So I think there has to be some, I think we're, we and others are starting to scrutinize like what exactly these requirements are. You don't yeah. want to have a situation where you're skating to the puck. Yeah. You're just doing something to do something. So yeah, we've heard a lot about that. And Congress is aware of it too. And there's been a GAO report on it too. So this is like an issue. Yeah. And so people are reporting they need help in various areas, grants or federal assistance, about 40%, regional extension centers with cyber experts on hand, 33%, closer relationship with federal authorities, 16%. So there's there's a lot of different things they're, they're asking for. So you get this information, and I assume this is the type of information you go up to the Hill and you start to to weave a story of what healthcare needs. Maybe, maybe not you, it's information you put in people's hands who are gonna be in those meetings, I would imagine. The report has nice infographics, so we are going to bring it up to the Hill, and we're going to we are sharing it with with. But it shows you too, like where the providers say that they need extra help. So this is to help the lawmakers figure out where to pinpoint things. Like they need federal assistance, we're pursuing that, especially for underserved providers. TBD on whether we'll get that some level of support with the regional, like something like a regional extension center that can help boots on the ground when you need help. Uh, closer relationship I mentioned at the top of the call with federal authorities or things that they feel like they need and a clear understanding of when they can and can't share information, which continues to be a concern. And you know, you'll notice that when some or many organizations are hit with a cyber incident that they lock down and they don't want to talk about it. But if you have a window into what happened, you can actually help others. Like the there was a great webinar with the, the CISO from Vermont who they were down for like a month and he laid out all the challenges that they had. There were some examples that he gave, like if he had to go back in time and fix things, like like the challenges of dropping back the paper, right? 
there's a lot of clinicians that they're younger, don't know how to code on paper. So there's some things like your phone system, is it tied into like everything else? You don't want single points of failure. There were so many, I can't even remember them all. It was, but he was willing to go with stick his neck out and talk about it. So that's what we need more of is to understand, have a window into what happened. But people are afraid to share information. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to give you the final word here. What what can we expect from Congress and the Hill next year? You know, what big events do you expect that we're going to make progress on next year? Oh, in this pandemic, man. Um, yeah, I know. Well, and, and we're going and we're going through a new variant right now. I mean, that could that right. could snarl I mean, things so pretty good. In the near term, what people can maybe look forward to is we're really hoping that, especially with the new variant that HHS will reissue the PHA, the Public Health Emergency. So for those of you who wonder how this actually happens, it's renewed every 90 days. It's up for renewal in January. Does it get renewed by a vote of the House or how does it get renewed? And then, no, no, this is by HHS. The secretary would decide to reinstitute it for another 90 days and then another 90 days. But last year, there was an acting secretary in place before Secretary Becerra was confirmed. And the acting secretary put out an, a note to the state. It, it's sub-regulatory, but it basically is like, we promise not to pull the rug out from underneath you. We're not going to ter- terminate the PHC until at least the end of 2021. And we will give you a 60 days notice. Well, obviously the pandemic is not over. And so I think our best guess is that it will be renewed, number one, by HHS in January. And number two, that they may issue a similar like-minded letter that they did last year. Now, whether Congress acts to change these, because um, the pandemic authorities are just temporary, right? Whether Congress acts is another big question mark. So we're following that closely as well. But that would be one thing I think that you can look for is at least some level of certainty, hopefully, moving forward on telehealth. Mari, there is absolutely no chance that the public health emergency comes off any time in 2022. That's a prediction. It's just my personal prediction, yeah. but in January of last year, I said, there's no chance it's coming off in 2021. I don't think there's any chance it's coming off in 2022. Yeah. Not because I think the pandemic yeah. is going to get worse or anything to that effect. I don't think there's any appetite right. for this administration or for this HHS secretary to pull it off. It's actually a way to fund a bunch of things without getting funding, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. so, so yeah. I think it's, I think it's just going to continue. That's exactly right. And we're happy to come back and maybe bring the team on and we can talk about whatever you want to talk about, whether it's a little bit more depth, whether it's interoperability or telehealth or patient ID or privacy. I would say another thing our team's going to focus on, which we haven't talked about on this call, but we can talk about next time is the care continuum. It's not just the patients don't just go to the hospital, they don't go to the doctor's office, they go somewhere else, especially Medicare patients or those with um, chronic conditions. So that's something we're paying attention to and trying to make sure that interoperability spreads across the entire sector and that they're well supported. Fantastic. Mari, I want to thank you for coming on the show this year. It's been fantastic. And I also, uh, you know, really appreciate the work that you and your team are doing on behalf of Health IT up on the Hill. And I look forward to more progress next year. And you guys are wading into as much uncertainty as anybody else in the industry. I mean, you just, it's an election year again as well. So we'll... (laughs) That's those always get, get kind of fun up there on the Hill as well. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Thanks again. Hope you have a a great holiday and we will definitely catch up after the first of the year. That sounds great, Paul. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.
What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note. Perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to this show. It's, it's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or they can go wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, which is what I use, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're out there. They can find us. Go ahead, subscribe today, send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our channel sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. Those are VMware, Hillrom, Starbridge Advisors, Aruba, and McAfee. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.